Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. It's spring. The sun is out. The kids are almost out of school. You know, you can't help but start to think about vacation season, summer vacation season. Don't you agree, Sherry? Yeah. I mean, we live in Denver, so sometimes we get, like, some crazy spring snows. So, this is, this because this is, I'm a pessimist, I suppose. I always get worried this time of the year. And I get excited. Our neighbors always have, (laughs) like, our neighbors have these great, like, flowering trees and I'm and our lilac bush and I'm always like no oh and I panic like all spring as things start to bloom and I'm like watching the weather because I'm like do I go cover it up how's my garden and all that you know well certainly we have spring storms to deal with but summer means vacation season and we I know I'm excited about (laughs) mostly (laughs) mostly I mean to be honest we've occasionally taken you know, vacations that were just our family going to like a national park or something fun. But mostly we just go and take the kids to see their grandparents yes. at their two different grandparent homes. Yes. But something that we've started doing recently, the last couple of years, is the town that your family lives in has really one of the most beautiful state parks in existence. And we've camped there while we were visiting your family. But a tornado took out the whole park in February. March, end of March, and, March 31st uh, to be exact. But, March 31st, wow. Yeah. Seems like it was longer ago than that. Anyway, so our uh, our camping reservation has been canceled because the park... Sorry, folks, park's closed. <laughs> we thought I should have told you. So, if any listeners want to send an email with uh, naming the movie that I just referenced there, that'd be great. But anyway, we... Uh, Why, because yeah. you don't know it? Of course I do. Oh, okay. But... Uh, so our, our camping vacation has been ruined already. I know. Here in late April. So sad to hear, but we'll, we'll, we will survive. But the whole topic of summer vacations, especially if you've experienced alcohol, alcoholism, either as the active drinker or as the spouse, there are two different sides and two different perspectives on what vacation means and has meant. And I know, Sherry, that vacation has been a traumatic subject for you in the past. Fair enough to say? Fair. Yeah. Um, And every time we would be getting ready for vacation when I was drinking, and even in the first couple years of sobriety, I would be all excited when I would get all my work stuff done and covered and put away. And, you know, I'd have just the minimum of, of stuff I'd be bringing with me. But for the most part, we'd be in the clear. And you would get you know, kind of terrified. And I, somebody said, and I wish I could remember who it was, somebody that we interact with said, you know, you call it vacation, but it's really just taking the carnival on the road. You know, it's not circus on the it's road. taking the circus on the road. You're, you're still bringing your kids and all their needs. And, well, and especially the way we've done vacation, not that I'm poo-pooing it, but when we go to just visit family, it's like, you're just in a the house. They're yeah. still cooking and cleaning responsibilities right. and laundry. It's not like we're actually getting away where we're just bringing our dirty laundry home. You know, like we're still trying to maintain. For the most part, that is true how we've done so it. So it's like just disrupting. And maybe with little kids too and like the 
time difference and the sleeping arrangements. It's always just been kind of stressful, like that transition for when you have littler kids. It's just taking the shit show and putting it somewhere else, and it makes it even worse. And then you add alcohol. Yeah. Well, it, so if you relate to this initial conversation, this is just a tease. We have, it's been just Sherry and I for the last several episodes of the podcast. We've been incredibly busy, so lining up guests and, um, you know, roundtable episodes that we know our listeners love. That has not happened for the last month or so, but we've got a couple of coming up, and one of them is going to be a roundtable discussion about vacations. We know we have a lot of people in our Echoes of Recovery group who have very strong opinions about what it feels like to go on vacation, and so we've got a roundtable coming up on that topic, and uh, we've got another roundtable that I want to tease about. It, it's going to include spouses who have chosen to move on. You and I, Sherry, by the, by our fingernails, you know, held on to our marriage through the really, really, really rough spots, and I think we're in a good spot now going forward. I feel good. I hope you do too. But that's not the right choice for everybody. For some people, parting company is the right choice for one or both parties. Not all marriages survive alcoholism. And for some of the spouses that have chosen to move on, that haven't had it necessarily, you know, kind of thrust upon them, I guess, um, haven't waited until the very worst possible thing happened, but they, they made that really I, I would say probably for most people the hardest choice they'll ever make in their whole life to make that divorce, especially if there's kids involved. Um, but they've moved on, and they're you know they're, there's life on the other side. And obviously, as I'm stumbling through even this tease, I'm not the one to be talking about this. So we are assembling a roundtable of uh, the loved ones of alcoholics who have chosen to end the relationship and move on, and let them talk about what's life like on the other side. And so I think that's going to be a, you know, certainly a painful and heartfelt episode, but also a positive one because Mm -hmm. we need to paint both the pictures. We don't need people to think either your marriage survives or your life is ruined because there is another alternative. And we've got just the people to come on and talk about that. So a couple of really exciting roundtable episodes coming up. Ready for the listener question, Sherry? Yeah. Can the spouse or partner of an alcoholic expect to ever feel totally safe or secure again once their alcoholic loved one is in recovery? Is it normal and expected to always worry about what a relapse will do to the family, to their spouse, and ultimately to their entire lives? There's lots of meat on that bone right there, Sherry. I know. It's a meaty, meaty question. You know, you know what I mean when I say there's meat on the bone, right? Because, yeah. you know, I coach high school soccer. Yes. And I like to say things like that with my soccer teams. and uh, They're too they, young to understand. They yeah. think I'm nuts. Yeah. My favorite, I, I say with the, the soccer girls a lot, is you put too much mustard on that hot dog. Oh, I don't know what that means. It's, they just hit, hit means... the ball too hard. Oh. Like they made a pass that's unreceivable. So Oh. Put too much mustard, too much mustard on a hot, a hot dog. Messy, look, sour. Yeah, one of yeah. them the other day asked me if I could write down all my stupid sayings <laughs> you're, with you're the translation. So they, yeah. I mean, <laughs> honestly, this this in a very small way this relates. I 
as as we have come through what we have come through, and like one of my f- biggest goals, I don't want to get off track. One of my biggest goals, especially with the the girls teams, is to empower them and make them feel like you know here I am a fifty year old tyrant of a man who has the potential to yell. I don't much, but I can, and I. <laughs> I want them to feel comfortable standing up to me. And they do. They do it all the time. Can you write that? They book put me of in all your stupid that's, sayings that's what with translation. That's right. We'll, we'll, we'll memorize it if you need us to. But can you write them all down? Because none of them make sense. going to be my MVP for this season. That's yeah. awesome. And I, lo- I mean, I could easily have been you know, well, agitated even some, or. Even some of yours. But I, I loved it. Even some of yours I don't know or understand, like mustard on a hot dog. I've never heard of that. Too much mustard on that hot dog. Yeah, and I'm like, sometimes I always like, is he just making this shit up? I or also, is he crisscrossing or overlapping two different idioms? I also coach with people that are younger than me, and they think I'm nuts too sometimes. So yeah. it's not just the players. Maybe it's some of those old coaches from the 80s that you loved listening to their commentary. And, yeah. You know, when you, you got, were growing you know, up. Everyone's got mentors. Yeah, yeah. So, right, so anyway, yes, there's a lot of meat on the bone for there's that. Lots I'm of meat kind there's of there. interested in knowing the perspective from you being the optimistic but person that is in recovery. I'm interested in what your take on that is. So, I think what this person who I, I think her spouse is in early recovery, early sobriety. I think she's got a huge uphill battle, and so does he. And I think that they honestly need to understand that. The first thing that came to mind when I read that question is, it's important for both of these two people to understand that it it would be easier to start over. And this is especially critical for the alcoholic to understand, because we just, in case after case, this is a universalism, we don't have any real concept of how much damage we have done. If you think about how an alcoholic, an active alcoholic relationship typically transpires, me as the drinker, I do things that are objectively out of hand. You know, I am moody, I raise my voice, I say stupid things, I get drunk in front of the kids, whatever the things are. There's no arguing that you know, I, I've gone off the deep end and I need to apologize. The spouses, the loved ones, they often just keep it all under, you know, seemingly under control. Now, I think it's important to recognize that the spouses are impacted by alcohol too. We've talked about this a lot. And there were lots of times where you flew off the handle and lost your shit too, right, Sherry? As a result of the alcohol. Oh yeah, a lot. But not, but not the same, right? I mean, like it's like 90-10, like 90% of the shit losing or moodiness or passing out or saying inappropriate things, 90% of that was me. 10% was you. Now, I know you would feel guilty about it. I know a lot of the loved ones that we we work with and talk with, they feel terrible when they do that. But come on, they're not doing it at nearly the rate as the alcoholic. So as the drinker, I see you holding everything together. I see you holding the family together. I see you you know, showing up and doing your part all the time. And so I don't realize how much damage I've done to you. It's not like you ended up in a hospital bed. If you ended up in a hospital bed as a result of my drinking, then it would be obvious, holy shit, 
This has caused all kinds of problems for Sherry. I don't know if this relationship is going to survive. But that's not the mentality that a high-functioning alcoholic has. High-functioning alcoholic comes out of active addiction and sobriety and says, yeah, we got a little damage to repair. It starts with me stopping drinking. Let me work on that. And then we're going to be fine. We, we don't know that we have caused capital T trauma for our loved ones. And I want to I wanna jump right to, you know, I talk a lot about Esther Perel of late, Belgian-American psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, pardon me, who is super awesome, and I recommend everyone looking her up on the internet. But she says, you know, basically that it's impossible to be attracted to someone you're taking care of. So when you are my only emotional outlet and I'm coming crying to you, Sherry, and telling you how hard it is to quit drinking and how bad I feel, you know, that's fine. But I can't expect you to also look at me as an attractive romantic partner. So that's just another piece of the damage that we've done. I mean, so anyway, I think it's just critically important for both parties, but especially the alcoholic, to understand that it would be easier for both parties to just start over. Go find different people to fall in love with and have a relationship with. Because um, the the amount of damage that's done is it's just massive. And, you know, one more thing I want to say on this, and I'll go back to a, another soccer analogy that has nothing to do with mustard. <laughs> Pardon me. Excuse me. You choked on your own little joke there. But, and this isn't just me. I've actually talked to sports psychologists, multiple sports psychologists, professionals about this. But you talk about the fact, when we talk about trust, with a boys soccer team, you have to earn their trust. doesn't matter who you are. They're not going to trust you off the bat. You're going to have to earn that. With a girls soccer team, the trust is given. But if you break that trust, they'll never trust you again. So you have to be gentle with that trust. I think about that in relationship to our relationship all the time. I think about the fact that early on, I feel like you had a lot of trust for me. But then once that's broken, getting it back, that's the hard part. So that's why I say it's easier just to start over. If you met, you know, six years ago when I was finishing drinking, if you just, if, if we just decided to split up and you found somebody new, until they gave you a reason not to trust them, I think you'd be building trust from maybe zero as opposed to building trust from negative seven million like it is with an active alcoholic. I've talked a lot. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, well, I guess my perspective on the listener question would be <clears throat> similar to that. And sometimes I don't... I don't know. Sometimes I feel like... Maybe it's okay to kind of be a little bit, like, in the back of your mind, even if everything's going well and recovery slash discovery and growth and everything is going well. I think it's okay to have that in the back of your mind a little bit because of a relapse because I think you also need to have a plan. I mean... You know, this would be the same way if you were rebuilding trust in a relationship, I think, back from an affair. Yeah. Like, how are you going to handle it? What's going to be your plan? Yes, it, and, I, you know, like I said, I feel like this is me being a little bit of a pessimist. And maybe 
keeping in that, both the parties keeping that on the forefront, not on the forefront, but in the back of their mind, like, this is a possibility. Things aren't always perfect. Nothing is guaranteed. So it helps keep you motivated to keep doing the work and keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think... So, and I think it's like, almost like when childhood, when you have had bad experiences from things, there is a tentativeness that's inside you. And you can use your courage and your strength to get over it and move forward if it's something that makes you feel uncomfortable and you use those muscles. But I don't know if it's ever completely gone. You know, any damage that's done, I don't know if it's ever completely gone. And it just makes you use different muscles and have a plan and how to even how you cope with it yourself. I don't know. I might have gotten off easy because of my experience with 10 years of relapses. I would get, I would be sober for a while, a couple of weeks, few months, whatever. And then I would decide I was going to start drinking again. And this went back and forth for 10 years. Sometimes the sobriety periods were longer, six months, twice, nine months, one time. We've talked about this, but because of that, when I did make it finally over the hump to permanent sobriety, you were very skeptical and you weren't my cheerleader and you weren't, you know, you didn't immediately start trusting me. You didn't trust me for years. And that seemed normal to me because I had so many times tried sobriety and then started drinking again. So it was easy for me to say, why would she trust me? I've gone months before. Did How did it feel from your perspective, though, putting yourself in the shoes of this listener? I mean, I think you're right. Why why would you drop your defenses and start trusting immediately? Maybe this listener, maybe this is her partner's first time trying sobriety and she feels this way. Maybe she feels guilty, like she should be jumping on the bandwagon. But but I know it has happened. The relapse possibility is so high. Yeah. I the think, protecting yourself by not trusting is important. Yeah, and I would I would say never feel guilty for not trusting. And I know I've said to you in a lot of ways, like, I trust you, Matt, more than any person in the world. Now you do. Now I do. But also I say things like, but there's still things that I'm sure are very scary for me to trust about you. Because I, I've never been able to like fully trust and I think that was with my situation growing up I'd always held back a little bit and never given everything to every to one person you know I've never been so open to one person so I think in the first few years there has to be hesitancy Mm -hmm. about whether a relapse is going to happen and you have to hold on to that a little bit and then I think like I said, just even in the back of your mind, like, you know, it could happen. Something could go wrong. Things often go wrong. There could be things that are triggers. Also, there could be like a conversation where I know I took this really poorly once. We were in the car. We were meeting up with friends for a long weekend. Friends slash also people that owned a franchise of the bakery that we owned. Right. And we were meeting up and you sat in a parking lot and you talked to me about how it was going to be hard and how you wanted to drink. And I, I lost it. I, I was so upset and I lost it. Well, was that the first time I had ever? No. Well, that's the point. That was the, but 
I think, God, if I had kept my fucking cool that time and just listened to you say, I really want to drink, this is going to be so hard, and if I could have been more positive, I mean, I beat myself up about this, would that have, at least maybe we would have gotten through that weekend. And then that wouldn't have been traumatic when we got home. It wouldn't have been uncomfortable for me that weekend. You may have been uncomfortable watching other people consume alcohol, but no one would have consumed the way you were consuming. So they wouldn't have been as over. But I don't know. But I'm like, sometimes I think, God, if I would have just listened to you instead of getting upset and freaking out, because you did end up drinking. We stopped at the liquor store on the way to the cabin. And I think, God, if I would have just let you share your emotions instead of losing it, would that have changed anything? I, so I think I if feel you confident have, saying no, it well, wouldn't have. I don't know, and you know, and maybe it would have been you would have drank when you got back after the weekend. I, I've, and I'm sure that you're probably right, but I think also we have to kind of be prepared to just sit and, as the spouse, sit and listen to some things that are really uncomfortable and hard because you don't hold the key. They hold the key to well, the relapse. that's the point. I would respond to what you said. It, you could have been very patient and listening, or you could have lost your shit. I, I think I was going to drink that weekend regardless. I, I, it's really interesting to me that now, with the relationship in a good place where it is now, and with me having lots of sobriety in my you know past here, I listen to your opinion and take your suggestions a thousand times more than I did back then. I mean, this is sad, and I feel terrible saying it, but I didn't care what you thought back then. This, this like, you know, I'll get all like, I don't know, this, this demon had a hold of me, and your opinion didn't matter much. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, and then... And I mean, and that's totally fine. I just think that that's something, like that scenario there, and then the fact that I couldn't just listen and let you talk and maybe talk through it. Maybe this person's spouse is a couple years down the road, but it's a situation where there had always been alcohol or it was going to be, or maybe it was stressful financial or hospitalization or death. Maybe they have to be guarded be able to understand, like, what is their plan for a relapse and and being able to listen to something that's going to be really hard to listen to, perhaps. of Because I never understood when you would say, oh, how great it feels to drink. Right. I'm like, I don't understand that. Yeah. And, and I sit and I would listen to it and I would get cringy and I would feel so sad for you. I mean, I would think, God, what a pathetic loser. Yeah. <laughs> Like, how is this so glorious when you fucking wreck the next several days for us? Yeah. And the family. Yeah. Like, what, you know, I never understood the hold. So, to listen to that was really uncomfortable and hard. Sure. And I had to, I I think I learned to be a little bit more respectful of it, where before I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't understand. You're so stupid. Blah, 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 blah. You don't understand what you're going to lose, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no... Yeah, that that's another big, you know, kind of misunderstanding um, that that euphoric feeling that I had. I think that's pretty common among functioning alcoholics, and the fact that their spouses don't get that feeling and don't understand it, pretty common as well. 
that I, I want to I just want to go back to, I think, how important, how critical it is for the alcoholic in the relationship to understand these these points were life changing for me when I figured out that my wife loves me, but she doesn't like me. She's not attracted to me and she doesn't trust me. And I didn't figure that out like as soon as I stopped drinking. No. It took a long time and a lot of talking. Because I, I just think we see a lot of uh, alcoholics in early sobriety. They're trying to navigate their relationship. And they think they're still navigating from a position of... <laughs> Equality, power, a higher level of their, yeah, yeah, like placement on the podium. (laughs) Listen, the things that hold people together, this is what I'm convinced of. The things that hold people together who have been through alcoholism are their vows. A lot of people take those vows very seriously. A lot of the people whose relationship ends in divorce take those vows very seriously. That's a huge hurdle to overcome. You, You know, you, you, Elizabeth Taylor, I don't know that she took her vows particularly seriously or name somebody else that's been married six times. Johnny Carson. God, I'm dating myself. I sound so old. <laughs> you are so... You're younger than I am and you sound older. Well, okay. What's somebody that's young that's been married a bunch of times? I don't know. They are, they're I out there. Ten, I'm sorry. Okay. I have no time for that stuff. Some people don't take me. their vows as seriously as others, but what you and I have come in contact with is a bunch of people who thinks it's very, very serious to get married, whether they're still married or whether they've had to... The Kardashians. Go through I'll painful divorce. All of them. All of the they Kardashians, I'm sure. They all don't take marriage as seriously <laughs> as we do. Okay. That's the only people I can come up with. So the vows. Hold people together through this. Finances. That is a huge one. That's probably the <laughs> biggest one. Yeah, that's When you've hard. intertwined your finances, when one person is primarily taking care of the kids and the other person is primarily earning the money that keeps people in bad marriages you know whether it's alcohol or otherwise that keeps people in bad marriages yeah the mortgage is in both of your names you know one person makes more money than the other uh just uh retirement plans all of that it's a nightmare to unwind and i and here's the thing i don't think that a lot of the drinkers have any idea that if those finances weren't wrapped together You'd have been divorced a long time ago. I'm just 100% confident that that that's the case. Um, So in addition to the finances, the legal intertwinings, right? The, you know, the marriage, we, you know, you and I owned a business together. So um, that was less of a financial burden and more of a, how, you know, it was, we, you were the 51% owner because somebody told us once that having a female owned business would give us all these advantages which we never saw a single one of those but you know you're the 51 percent owner just means so i got that? all the spam calls yeah well and the and last was... thing you wanted was if we had gotten divorced was to be responsible for that damn bakery yeah. so so you're the 51 percent was a big check mark in the negative column okay. um so yeah the legal stuff and then the kids i think the finances and the kids because you know people don't they want what's best for the kids so they think maybe staying together, even though I'm married to a drunk, is the way to go because, you know, I don't it's want to have shared custody. Time. It's not bad all the time. Having this person still in my kid's life is important. So 
Or the weight of, if we do get divorced, what's going to happen to my partner that's drinking? Ooh, I didn't have that one on my list. I mean, I think that was a worry, like, and a concern, like, because, I mean, I even remember one of our arguments and post-argument conversations, and we were uncomfortable, like, you were like, you can't leave me, you don't know, I'd fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, that goes back to what I said before. You know, I realized you didn't like me. You still love me, but you didn't like me very much. But you did still love me. I know there's there's someone that we interact with quite a bit who talks about how the way she views her spouse, she has divorced, is he'll still be part of my family. He's just not my husband anymore. Yeah. And so that concern for the for us, for us alcoholics, even even if the relationship doesn't work out, is still there. Right. And then, you know knowing my history and scenario of having parents that were divorced when I was really young, but my father was still like supposed to have every other weekend custody. He could show up drunk. So like, besides like, is he going to go off the deep end if we get divorced? But then when you have to have that split with the kids and that shared custody and that concern and worry, like how are the safe, what's the safety of my kids? What's the safety in addition to I'm missing out on time. With, with my the kids, kids myself. Exactly. So. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty powerful list. Wedding vows, finances, legal, you know, stuff, kids, and concern for the alcoholic, even if it, even if you're not, you know, uh, in like with them, you're still in love yeah. with them. So concern for them. So, you know, I, I'll just throw this out there. I, I would bet you that 90% plus of alcoholic marriages would end in divorce without these concerns that keep them held together. And learning that has, again, it's been probably the biggest transformational thing in my life in how I treat you, in how I view you. Because that's the thing. It's not even just that I can, because I'm sober now, I can fake it and I can treat you better because I'm working real hard on it. I'm using my... Sorry, folks. Parks closed. Yeah. Moose outside should have told you, voice. Weird. Yeah. But I don't. I don't treat you better because I'm. I know that that's the only way to save the marriage. I treat you better because I learned that you didn't like me, weren't attracted to me, and didn't trust me. So I feel like I'm making an effort to win you back, and that feels really good. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. So if you're going to look at that, like. doing the things that are going to make you attractive to your partner, if you think of that as arduous, and how long do I have to do this for? Then you shouldn't be in a relationship. You shouldn't be in that relationship, and you should just, it'll be easier to start over for both of you. But I don't look at it that way. I look at it like, hey, I'm about to say something. Is this going to piss Sherry off? Let me run it through that filter. And if it is, maybe I won't say it. And that's not me holding myself back or not being the real who I am. That's me having respect for this person that I'm planning to spend the next, you know, 70 years with. We're going to live a long time, Sherry. No, we aren't. (laughs) Not that long. But, so I know I'm just belaboring this point, but I just think it's, this is the thing we keep running up against over and over and I just the don't two think different realities is what it really. There are two really, different realities. What and we, the alcoholics, down. need to understand your reality. And if we don't, it's to our detriment. And I don't know how the relationship gets better. 
There. I even left a little dramatic pause. So people hopefully will absorb <laughs> not, will absorb that. Not very long. You like you like to talk. Do you think my number's right? Ninety percent? Something like that? Probably. I mean Without those artificial things holding things together? Without those You know, wedding yeah. balance finances. Not artificial, but Yeah. You're not still together because you're you know, there's there's a romantic romantic foundation to the relationship. You're together because of these other yes. things. Ninety percent divorce, something like that. Probably. So I reached that decision point when I realized this stuff. I either have to try to win her back or give up. And I think there are a lot more people at that decision point that don't have any idea they're at that decision point. Again, especially my side of the fence. The the I mean, you're struggling so much in early sobriety to stay sober. You're trying to beat this addiction. It's a big deal. I don't mean to make it sound like it's not. So taking on the task of deciding whether or not to try to win back your spouse, I mean, maybe that's just overwhelming for people. But I think it's also realistic. But also I think what you said at the very beginning of this um, was that you both have to have realistic expectations. And we've often said that it takes a long time. Yeah. And, and you know, there's no reason you feel like you have to have everything fixed right now. I think there's a lot of people that have that pressure and that feeling of impatience. Oh, it's been three months. Why am I not yeah. blah, blah, blah. Fill in the blank. Well, it's only been three months. It's only been three years. You know, it's... This stuff takes a long it's time. It's been a long time that you've had that, you know, that trauma and that relived experiences and... And you have to just, you know, figure out who you are as a person without alcohol. If you're the person that's in sobriety, you have to figure out how you're going to now. And maybe even for the partner that still might drink occasionally, you have to just like, that's a whole issue. You have to decide whether or not you're going to drink, how much you're going to be involved in working on your stuff, working on your trauma, working on your own self and that self-reflection from both parties. That takes a long time. So there's no reason to feel rushed to fix the marriage or rushed to get out of the marriage in a way, unless there's like physical issues. Abuse. And, and abuse. Violence. And other, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a pause stage that I think needs to happen. And I know we say that it takes about a year for the addict's mind to recover. The brain chemistry, yeah. And the brain chemistry. But, you know, that's that's just year one. Well, I'm glad you brought up that you had to work on you too, because I want to clarify a little bit what that means. Yeah, you had to work on dealing with the trauma that you had experienced. When I had to recognize and own and be okay saying I had trauma, because I had a hard time saying, I don't want to be a victim. I'm not a victim. I had choices. When really in a lot of ways... I did have choices, but they would have been really hard choices. Yeah, we talked about those vows, exactly. legal, financial, Kids, yeah. you know, like and proximity to family or friends that could help out. So there was a lot of things, and I hated it when you said you had a lot of trauma. You are a victim too, and I had to recognize that alcohol changed me. But I had to even just recognize and own up and be okay with saying, yeah, I was a victim to alcohol as well. Yeah. I think I'm glad you're making that point. So you had to not only deal with your trauma, but first you had to own the fact that you had experienced trauma. That's the work of the loved one. 
the work of the loved one is not to become a better wife or be more giving or more understanding. This is the bullshit that that really bothers me and I think is holding couples back from recovery. I talked about that decision point when I realized you loved me, but you didn't trust me. You weren't attracted to me. I don't remember what the other thing was. Uh, and you didn't, what's that? Didn't like, and you didn't like me. That decision point was win you back or give up the, there's not a third option to blame you for the, for your side of things. You don't have a side of things. In my humble opinion, we can blame everything on alcohol. We can blame my jackassery on alcohol. And we can blame your reaction to my jackassery on alcohol. I'm fine with all that. But what I can't do is say, Sherry, I've made a list of things you need to work on. Here, you need to, when I walk in the door, you need to greet me in a nicer way. You need to offer more sex. You need to be, you know, more loving and understanding when I've had a rough day. That That's not... That's not going to fix the problem. I can't blame you this. for me feeling bad. Yeah. And 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 the and remember that the rate of recovery is different between the partner who's sober and the partner who's the addict because you have to run really fast like you've said towards sobriety and we have to hold back to see how things are going. So we aren't going to be jiving. We aren't going to have the same vibes. That's right. We aren't going to be on the same wavelength for a long time. That's absolutely right. And and the partner, and that that's one of the things that I appreciated this time about this last time that you tried to get sober was you kind of knew where you stood and you kind of just sat back and shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. And you didn't try to tell me all the things that you were learning or all the things that I should be doing or all the, you know, I mean, for one, we didn't know a lot of, it, but you were reading and educating yourself and trying to find ways to be sober. And I, you know, I wasn't there to take it. And if you started shoving it down my throat, that probably would have pushed me out the door for yeah, her. For sure. I would have been like, I don't know if I can handle this because that would just make me not like you more. Yeah. This listener's question was all about trust. You know, how do I get over the hump to trust? And my, again, my take is this is someone who's in, in a pretty early state in sobriety and she's perhaps kind of beating herself up for why can't I trust this person? But there are components to trust. And, I, and first of all, trust is the last thing to come back. Trust takes years and years. Brain chemistry takes a year. Trust takes years and years because it's been, you know, you, it's been violated and it's, this is not an easy thing. And so let's talk about what those components of trust are. One of the things that the listener mentioned specifically in her question that was generically about trust was safety. When am I going to feel safe? Super important. Uh, intimacy is another component of trust and honesty is another component of trust. Look, if you don't mind, Sherry, let's go through those separately you know, the safety, this is another really hot point for me. This is, in marriage, we pledge mutual trust to each other, right? I trust you with uh, our kids. I trust you with our finances. I trust you not to cheat on me. I trust you not to burn our house down. All these things. And you tr- you trust me in the same way. for and, and for each other's safety as well. So this is the person 
with this mutual pledge of trust and and as the loved one of the alcoholic, that person that you've got this bond, this trust, this agreement with becomes the most dangerous person in your life. Now, if you were to walk down a dark alley in a bad part of town, there'd probably be a more dangerous person involved there, right? But since you, Sherry, don't very often go to a bad part of town at night and walk down dark alleys, you don't put yourself in... Um, you know, unexpectedly, outrageously unsafe positions. So if you, if, if you stay, you know, if you stay in a relatively safe environment throughout the course of your normal day, I was the most unsafe person. I was the most dangerous person in your life. You didn't know what kind of mood I was going to be in. You didn't know what kind of nasty thing I was going to say. You didn't know if I was going to jump from being, you know, like one of the things that you talk about a lot is, I would joke around with the kids and get them all amped up. And then when they were amped up, then I'd be like, calm down. You guys are out of hand. You know, why are you so, why are you laughing and screaming so much? So you've got, I, I become the most dangerous person in your life. This person to whom you have this mutual pledge of trust. Because it's unstable and that's that safety. Or we would argue about driving. I mean, that was, we oh. had a podcast on that. I mean, you know, being reliant on who's going to drive home and the argument after drinking, like, like, uh, you know? So that's the capital T trauma that I talk about. The person that's supposed to be the safest person and be a mutual protector is the most unsafe person in your life. Good luck coming back from that. That is not easy. Uh, Another component of trust, these things go hand in hand, is the intimacy piece. We've done lots of episodes talking specifically about intimacy, and we'll continue to do episodes talking um, specifically about intimacy, but we're not going to talk a lot about that here. But I, I just think it's important that it be acknowledged and that you know, if our listeners are working on bringing back a marriage from alcoholism, you can't ignore the intimacy. This is, you know, this, the components of trust that we're talking about right now are safety, intimacy, and honesty. Think of it as a three-legged stool. It wouldn't stand up very well if you just ignore one of those legs. How's that for an old-timey reference? It's like mustard on that hot dog. Oh, you know who else likes hot dog? Hobos. Um, you ever... <laughs> Shut up. you got to so get on that ridiculous. ball like a hobo on a hot dog. You're so ridiculous. I love that one. I like hot dogs. So. Kids love that one, too. <laughs> but, yeah, you can't just ignore the hot dog or the... <laughs> the intimacy leg of the three-legged stool because it'll fall over. Honesty is the other component of trust that we want to talk about here. Again, from the perspective of the alcoholic who has denied things that are blatantly, obviously true, has hidden the amount that we're drinking, in some cases lied flat out to your face about whether or not you've been drinking, they've been drinking, um, the lies are are huge and they the impact of the lies linger because even if I know okay I'm sober now I always tell the truth I'm never telling any lies even if I know that I'm telling the truth you don't know if I'm telling the truth or not because you've made a suspicious because That's right. of your covert actions from the past That's right You would often say I never lie and I am like Bull. And I believed that And you believed that and I was like well omission from Full honest truth, you know. Lies of omission, I, yeah. yeah, lies of omission. I'm like, 
like there are things or like you know the nasty things that you would say when we were drinking or the opinions that you would have that I felt were just unstable and that you believed them at the time because that was the alcohol talking and taking over but yeah there is there's no groundwork for trust if there isn't a lay that honesty and transparency yeah and and you just gotta as the former drinker you gotta understand that you might be immediately honest but having honesty as a trust building component is gonna take a long time because you might be immediately honest but they don't know that you're immediately being honest and they're waiting for that other shoe to drop and they should be because you've proven yourself unworthy untrustworthy we have proven ourselves untrustworthy I want to put this on me so so those are the you know the three components of trust this is I you know we've spent a lot of time trying to drive home the point especially to us former drinkers that there's been a ton of damage done and your expectations need to be low as far as how quickly things will get back on track and that it truly is easier to start over than to repair but you know so that's all real negative and I am an optimist as you said so let's talk about what the answer is how do you solve this puzzle I mean you and I are finally we're in a great place you're laughing at me as I say that no I just thought of something that made me think about something you said I'm not laughing at you something to share no no okay just look at me and giggle. That's, uh, <laughs> I think that's important feel, for listeners that, to know. Does that make you feel good? Uh, it makes me feel confused. <laughs> I feel confused a lot, though. So that's no worries. But so the answer is consistency and patience, in my humble opinion. No more sobbing puddle. I can't come and tell you how hard this is and cry to you. Look, we are married. And I should be able to, you should be an emotional safe place. But for us alcoholics, we've probably, you know, we've wrecked that. We've totaled that car. And so me coming and crying to you about how nobody else understands and this is so hard, it's not helpful. It it doesn't make me attractive in your eyes. So I need to find a tribe. I need to find my people whether that's Alcoholics Anonymous, a different recovery group, maybe it's something unrelated to alcohol. You know, we run writing groups here locally in Denver where you can express your emotions safely and be vulnerable and get positive feedback. You have to have that outlet for your emotions, but you can't just dump it all on your spouse and expect things to go well. Because, you know, you're trying to rebuild, have a little self-esteem, show a little confidence. Be trustworthy. Um, well, and I think it's okay to share a little bit of that if you reciprocate reciprocate to your part, let your partner. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'm not able to say that. Reciprocate. Yes, reciprocate. Yeah. Good point. Because, I mean, I don't mind if you were to come and share with me how hard it was. Not all the time. That's right. Because that would show that you're being honest about your emotions and that we're trying to build a connection. But you have to, in turn, listen to me. Yeah. And not dismiss it. So I think there has to be a little bit, 
yes, you need to find your own tribe. You need to go and whine to them all the time. Yeah. But you can come and we can have conversations and we can talk about it. We can share our feelings, which is rebuilding the relationship. But don't do it all the time and be respectful that I have my side of the story to tell too. And that you need to listen and not justify or dismiss. You know what we do need to do all the time though? Because this is all about consistency and patience. We need to show up every time. If we say we're going to do something, we need to do it. We need to, because one of the patterns of active alcoholism is being inconsistent and not always doing the things we say we're going to do and not always showing up for our family, for our spouses. And so changing that, changing that dynamic and showing up, being consistent is really, really important. Creating a peaceful environment. One of the really interesting things about this work, Sherry, that I've learned is not only do you want a peaceful environment, but everyone who's been through alcoholism from the side of the the partner, the spouse, they just want peace and consistency and normalcy. Stable. Yeah. they, They don't want exciting and thrilling and, you know, dangerous, but just not with the alcohol there. You just want to know what to expect on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis. Is that fair for me to say that? Yeah. Um, I also think that, you know, like, because the alcoholics come out of this, like, oh, I'm going to be so boring now because I'm not going to drink, so I've got to, like, ramp it up. I've got to figure out my new thing, you know, it's, whether it's hosting block parties for, with mocktails only and, like... You know, or running ultra marathons, or be yeah, or training into all the time. and you're like, just can we just sit for a moment and catch our breath, yeah, and find some calmness and some mediocrity, and you know, I'm not gonna say normal because there isn't really a normal, yeah. but some calm, boring times, yeah, because it's not been boring. That's right from our side of the street, I'm sure, and it's not been boring. Chaos is rarely boring. Yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm poo-pooing exercise. I think exercise is a big yeah, part of recovery. But you can also but you transfer. Can go too far. That's right. Yeah. You can go too far. You know, don't lie about anything. You know, building that honesty back, it's, again, consistency, peacefulness, patience. Just don't lie and keep going. Don't expect them to believe you right away. Just keep don't lying. Just keep don't lying. Keep don't lying. Don't ever stop. And displaying self-esteem. This goes back to the Esther Perel piece. You know, this isn't arrogance. Figure out what the difference between self-esteem and confidence is and arrogance. Don't be arrogant, but, you know, show up, uh, be responsible, look like you know what you're doing. And perhaps down the road at some point, your spouse will find that attractive over time. Well, and the self-confidence piece that I think will help with the honesty. If you feel like as the person searching for sobriety and you're being honest, but you're not being treated in a way that you feel like you should be treated because there is that history of lying and that person that you're in partnership with isn't giving you that kind of accolades for telling the truth. That's where the self-confidence helps. Like just, Keep doing it because it's working for you, you know, but don't get upset and mad and pouty and whiny because, oh, I'm telling the truth all the time and you don't believe me. Well, that's the self-confidence piece because you don't need to have other people validate you when you have self-confidence. Yeah, I was going to say you do when you're actively addicted, but yeah, if you can get out of that, 
start to feel good about yourself. You're absolutely right. And all of this, all of this stuff that we need to do, we just need to do it over and over, not for just weeks, not for just months, but for years. And that's how you can bring the relationship back. One of the things that's really interesting as we meet all these different people, Sherry, and learn their stories, there are some relationships that I really, really relate to. Like I, I'm like, oh my gosh, these are us. These people are us a few years ago. You know, others have different circumstances where, yeah, there's lots of similarities, but it's not it's not a match. It's not the same as what we went through. But it's interesting to me that sometimes I see those relationships where it's us a few years ago, and I can see you're on the right path. You're going the right direction. The, you know, you're just like Sherry. You're just like me. You're going to make it. But the, it, it's hard for me to watch when both parties seem on the verge of throwing in the towel. Because when I think back, right, there was some really hard stuff that we went through. So even if you're on the right path, the journey's going to be really, really hard. And I just would encourage people to remember that decision point when you're there. Are you there to win each other back or are you ready to give up? Um, if you may, if you reach that decision point and you decided to keep going and make it work and win that person back, Keep going through the hard stuff too. I mean, you know, the the decision to stay or, or to go, it's a continual one. It's one that you reevaluate as you move along. Um, but if you're making any kind of progress and you are, you know, if you're committed to consistency and peacefulness and self-confidence and honesty, then I just, I, I, I understand that sometimes divorce is the right answer. Often, frankly, divorce is the right answer. But but when when someone's on the path and they look like they're going to make it, it just breaks my heart if they uh, throw in the towel when they otherwise would have made it over the hump. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. When you see some, but when you see people that are so parallel with what we went through. Yeah. And they're so close. And then you can't just be like, just, you know, you can't tell them, just hang on, just hang on, just hang on, do this, do that. Because you can't just fix somebody else. Yeah. They have to figure it out. But you're like, you're so close and you don't even know how close you are to just getting over this next hump. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah. This was a great listener question. We made a whole episode out of it. If, if you listener, if you have a question for us, please email it to matt at soberandunashamed.com. We've gotten uh, quite a few in response to our plea for, hey, we're running low on listener questions. Uh, but we're always looking for, for more. So please send over your listener questions. Again, you won't get a clinical answer because we're not clinicians, but you will get a heartfelt answer based on our experience. You know, the last point I think that we would be remiss if we didn't make is when you're working on relationship repair, emotional relapses happen. That's not a case where I started drinking again, but that's a case where we felt just as bad as when I was drinking and went into what we describe as the pit where you just feel awful about yourself, about your spouse. You don't want to keep going. That's a thing. That's a real thing. And I think the sign of progress is when the emotional relapses, the time between them gets longer. So, you know, I, I don't think that you and I will never go into the pit again. I think we probably will. But 
I think we're at a point now where we can go a year between episodes of emotional relapse. And earlier on, we were lucky if we could go a month. So, uh, do you, I mean, do you agree with that? Do you, you know what that feels like to feel really, really bad like that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I think emotional relapses also happen when, you know, it's just a really, really challenging situation that pops up and it really is hard to kind of navigate um, a situation with without falling back into your old habits. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens is that's when you get the emotional relapses, when you fall back into your old habits, perhaps, of arguing and, and trying to resolve things. So, And I think there's a component of low self-esteem. Something makes you feel bad about yourself. And so on your way down, you drag the other person into the pit with you. Don't you think? Uh, I never thought of it like, I, I don't know. Hmm. Well, as it relates to that part of the topic, no one's going to ever accuse you, Sherry, of putting too much mustard on that hot dog. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.